All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Ferrand and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Rethinking Faith. I am the co-host of Rethinking Faith, Greg Ferrand, and we have a very special episode. Like, this is a unique episode where we're actually going to talk with Josh. We're going to hear about Josh's story. We're going to hear about uh, kind of his own evolution uh, in his faith journey, in where he's been, uh, what he's learned, what he struggled with, uh, where he is now, kind of his hopping from lily pad to lily pad in his own growth. And and I think that's it's more than just an interesting story because I think it shapes a lot of the DNA of our podcast and also um, the trajectory of where we're going from here. So, uh, hey, Josh, welcome, man. How, how, are you nervous being on the podcast? I'm so nervous, dude. I'm not, I don't like, <laughs> I don't like talking on the internet and uh, I get nervous on the around interweb. you. Yeah, I get nervous around you when you ask me questions. So I think it's going to be a struggle for me. Um, All right. Well, I'm I'm gonna be really. I'm just gonna throw you softballs. They're gonna oh, be nice. you know, okay. just just nice questions. <laughs> this is a, no gotcha, no gotcha journalism on this oh, particular man. episode. So, Sounds good. But, All right, that that puts my nerves at ease a little bit. Good, right on. Well, before we dive into the interview, just a reminder that Beer Camp is uh, coming up. Yeah, uh, yeah. With Trip, Trip Fuller. That's gonna be October 13th through 15th. Uh, and again, we'll be there and all of your uh, favorite uh, podcasts that create thoughtful spaces, safe spaces, disruptive spaces uh, for exploring our spirituality. And if you go to theology, uh, what is it again, Josh? Theologybeer.camp. Yep. Theologybeer.camp. And if you, uh, when you're, when you're registering, if you put in the code rethink, you get 50 bucks off. Uh, 50 so- whole dollars. That's, I mean, think about what you can do. I mean, that's legit. If you can save that 50 bucks, bring it to beer camp. Uh, think of the rethinking faith swag that you could purchase right? in person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also, too, like, 
just for people to keep in mind, because you know the so the price is two fifty, but with the fifty dollars off, it's two hundred. But that includes all of your beer and everything, so it's not like you have to show up and and also buy beer while you're there or wine right. or you know. Trip says that uh, he is open and affirming when it comes to beverages. <laughs> all beverages <laughs> are welcome. Uh, it's so, it's it's a it's a, it's a, a shame free zone if you happen yeah. to like a Chardonnay. Yeah, we're you know it might silently judge you, but that not like to your face, um, right? In your heart, you're judged, yeah. but not right. openly. Not openly. Okay. So okay, good. That's good, and also food. There's like food there and stuff. Like food just appears, and then you're like, oh, cool, I get to eat this food. So that's Dude, just some sweet. just something to keep in mind, right? That there's you're getting a lot right of the price of admission. Yeah, well, what I know the two of us have been talking about it. We're really excited to be there, and so many of the our friends will be there hosting their podcasts and uh, yeah i'm i'm just stoked i think it's going to be an amazing time but getting blast. back to today what so up? so part of this comes out just so you know so so this comes out so so josh and i we we talk a lot and uh we have many times we're just on the phone or or connecting so many of our conversations we feel like should probably be recorded anyway because we're talking about our own journeys and what we've wrestled with and it's no bullshit no presenting uh no trying to fit an image but both of us being very kind of raw and real in our own process and evolution and struggles and pain and joy and all of it and so as josh and i were talking i was like i i really think it would be an incredible gift uh for folks to hear your story and folks to hear where where you've come from and 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 where you feel like you are and where you hope to go uh and there is there are beautiful parts and messy as fuck parts and uh the messy as fuck parts become beautiful parts and uh, all of that is woven together so i just appreciate you josh and your willingness i mean your whole thing is vulnerability and authenticity uh but i just really appreciate your willingness to put it out there so maybe we start just with kind of like when i told my story a number of podcasts ago where if you just want to in a not a tiny nutshell but a medium to medium large size nutshell kind of share your story of kind of the beginning of your journey how you actually kind of woke up to spirituality and how it kind of got you to now you're a pastor now you're a brewer and a podcast host and you know take us and 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 where you are with that you're now doing your your teaching with trip you're writing books on hell you are uh engaged in theology and do it in a way that is really uh accessible uh and uh, and that's one thing and just just quick side note here I, just quick side note one thing i love about josh and i don't think i've ever, ever said this to you to your face josh but one thing i love about if you meet josh and you just hear him talk he just seems like a dude that you'd bump into at a bar and is just talking about hockey which i don't really care that much about but josh gives a lot of shit about hockey i don't give any shits but he cares about it and he's just like a dude at a bar that's talking about hockey but this guy like reads a book a day and he uh is is a genius i mean i think he's brilliant and his capacity to read explore engage and synthesize and process from the inside out from the heart uh in a way that is so accessible uh and not ivory tower theologian or academic even though i do think you could get your phd and be a brilliant professor but you've decided instead uh to 
live it out in a way for everybody to experience and articulate it in a no, no bullshit, no pretense way. So Josh, I think it's the first time I've actually said that to your face because I'm looking at his face right now on Zoom. Um, but anyway, I just, just props to you out of the gate on that. So, but back to the original question, why don't you kind of medium, medium sized nutshell your journey, uh, of how you got started and then we'll kind of, we'll go from there. Yeah, sweet. Well, thanks for your kind words, Ben. I appreciate it. And, um, just know that I am actively praying for your salvation, that one day you will come to saving, <laughs> saving faith in the NHL and ice hockey. Well, I. I've heard, Gretzky. Do I have, yeah. <laughs> I've heard I've heard the name Gretzky and, and the team Hurricanes, which is in my state. Other than that, that's about the, the high water mark of my hockey knowledge. Yeah. So praying for your soul and your salvation. Um, you'll get there <laughs> one day. <laughs> oh, but yeah, man, I'm excited. Thanks for, you know, the opportunity and for, um, you know, kind of coming up with this idea to, to interview me about this, because I have, you know, I've spoken about um, things on the podcast before, but. Uh, oftentimes in a cryptic way, um, but also just like kind of dispersed, you know, I've never kind of just like put it all out there to, to see what happens. So I'm excited to see what happens. Cause I don't even know <laughs> we're going to find out together. Um, uh, but as far as journey goes, let's start, I'll give like a, a big overview and then we can zoom in on different parts or something like that. However you want to go about it. So I grew up kind of like almost like what I'd call like a creaster, which is like a very Christianese kind of word, if you've heard it before, which that means Christians who go to church on Christmas and Easter, right? So uh, we did that for a hot second. And then uh, my parents, my mom and dad, got involved in this thing called the Walk to Emmaus, which is like a Christian retreat uh, for adults. Um, and that became like an important thing to them. And that kind of shifted in them something uh, where then we like really started going to church and getting involved and that kind of stuff. So I uh, kind of cut my teeth, so to speak, in a, a Methodist church growing up. I was there for a hot second. That's where I started going to youth group. Uh, that's where I experienced like my first altar call, <laughs> uh, you know, when I was in like fifth grade uh, at this big, you know, youth conference for for little Methodist kids. Um, and we were at that church and my parents were involved in tiny little like church in our town, um, maybe like 50 people. And uh, that was cool until they discovered the wonders and joys of early 2000s contemporary Christian music. <laughs> so uh, we went to the church down the street from the Methodist church, uh, which happened to be a Southern Baptist church and started attending there because they had some more contemporary upbeat uh, style of worship. Uh, to be fair, their youth group was awesome. I was heavily involved, um, very like massive youth group. I'm pretty sure there was more kids in the youth group than people that attended the church. <laughs> and the youth pastor, uh, my friend Justin, uh, who I still have a deep love and respect for, um, he uh, has shaped me in many ways. Uh, him and I don't always see eye to eye anymore, um, but that's okay. I still love Justin. Uh, so he was my youth pastor. And I was heavily involved in that, you know, all the way through middle school and into high school. Justin was the first person that kind of um, saw something in me that he thought it'd be a good idea to give me a microphone and like be like, you're in seventh grade, preach to these kids. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shit. All right. So that's kind of the person that did that for me. Um, 
and he would allow me to do all these like ridiculous like skits that I used to do uh, at youth group and um, you know I became like a student leader and all that kind of stuff so overall that was a pretty uh, good experience I only look back on it with fond memories Um, there was some sketchy shit that happened right like you know they brought in like some revivalist preacher one time that you know told the story of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And was like, they got saved from the fire, but you guys aren't going to be so lucky. That kind of thing. (laughs) So I had some of that, right? But Justin was super cool. So I don't have a lot of, you know, youth group trauma, so to speak, um, that a lot of people share in. Uh, Although where the trauma does start there is uh, when my brother was in seventh grade, which means I would have been in 10th grade, I believe. maybe 11th, uh, Jordan, he came out uh, to our family as gay. Um, and I remember my parents sitting me down and being like, Hey, Josh, like we have something that we need to tell you about Jordan. Uh, he's gay. And I was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> like what, what they told you already. And I was like, no, but he's my brother. I grew up with him. Like, I just know these things. Um, so like once that happened and that's when shit really got ugly that uh, the Southern Baptist church actually kicked my family out of the church. They said, you are no longer welcome here. Um, you can't be members. You can't come here whatever. Uh, like youth group parents were like texting and calling my parents. Like you guys are shitty parents. Cause you know this, you need tough love. Like you're supposed to not allow him to be this way and blah, blah, blah. What did you do wrong? Like students were texting Jordan, like you're going to hell, kill yourself, like crazy shit. Um, So that was kind of the first, when I look back, the first thing that started to like crack things open for me a little bit, you know? Um, So then we ended up like church hopping uh, a bunch, landed at this kind of cool, like, I don't know, non-denominational church where... Uh, we were there for a little bit, didn't get involved with their youth group much or anything. Cause I didn't like the kids that went to it. <laughs> I had some friends that went there, but I didn't like, you know, I didn't get along with a lot of them. Um, and so we were just kind of going Sundays and then my parents ended up really liking it and felt welcome and this kind of stuff. And then they wanted to become members and they were like, well, if you want to be members, um, you're going to have to let us, uh, put your son through gay conversion therapy. He has to be made straight and then you can become members. And so my parents were like, well, fuck you. And we left that church. <laughs> and, um, you know, that caused a lot of turmoil in my family, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, and basically stopped going to church for a while after that. My family did. Um, I still kind of hung out with some of my youth group friends. I was involved at this time in a thing called Chrysalis, which was like the kid version of Emmaus. So I did that a lot. Um there's definitely some bullshit that I picked up from Chrysalis uh, that I might've talked about before, kind of culty and weird. Um, But yeah, so eventually my parents uh, found another church uh, that would allow us to go. And that's kind of where my parents have been going ever since. Um, Although more recently uh, they've both kind of fall off. My dad now goes to that Methodist church that I grew up in uh, by himself on Sundays. And my mom kind of doesn't want much to do with, uh, the church anymore, uh, just continued hurt around uh, the gay thing. Because my other brother, Justin, identifies as pansexual. Um, so like, you know, it's just she doesn't want to be a part of something that's not uh, 
loving and welcoming and accepting to her family because her family is what matters most uh, to my parents and uh, to my mom. So, and kudos to them. They never did, you know, try to kick out my brothers or like hate on them or they don't have that story, you know, that so many of um, my other friends within the LGBTQ community have uh, where their parents were shitty about it. So that's good. Uh, but anyway, uh, continue being involved in like Chrysalis and stuff, uh, growing, building my fortress of faith, so to speak. Um, kind of, you know, a little bit arrogant. I thought I knew uh, a lot more than most people. So I kind of had that vibe about me. It was doing a lot more like teaching and preaching as a teenager. Um, and then ended up uh, graduating high school and going to Messiah College, um, which the only reason I went there is because I had friends that went there. It's the only college I applied for. <laughs> So I ended up in this little private Christian college, um, which I have a love-hate relationship with. I mostly have good things to say uh, about them. Um, and that's actually where my love for theology came from. Uh, I, you know, I, I went into college with this mentality of like, I don't know. I don't need theology. I have Jesus. Like, why do I need theology? Uh, which I know I've mentioned before with you, but then I, you know, I started taking theology courses there. Um, and that's how I ended up switching my major um, and started, you know, I ended up with a degree in graphic design, but um, I uh, have a minor in youth ministry, took a whole bunch of theology courses and extra like pastoral counseling, all that kind of stuff. Mostly positive experience uh, in college. Again, just continuing to build and grow. Like I was still very head centric, uh, building my ideas, getting more and more arrogant because I thought that I kind of was figuring out all this Christian stuff. And um, yeah, so graduated uh, out of Messiah as a very, you know, somewhat progressive evangelical, you know, I was different in that, like, I thought gay people were cool. Um, <laughs> but I was not really open, you know, I wasn't really open about that. I didn't feel like I could be. So that was kind of just like a hush hush thing for me. Um, and ended up working for an organization called Youth for Christ, which is a parachurch organization. Um, that place I look back on with so much um, joy because it's when I got to, you know, first really start interacting with quote unquote non-churched kids. And it kind of broke me open and kind of gave me permission to actually be myself, you know, um, more so. And like, they didn't give a shit about my theological knowledge or whatever. Um, it just taught me the importance of relationship. Um, so that was really cool. I did that for about a year and then ended up uh, receiving a job offer to go live the dream and be a pastor, you know, the greatest job, maybe outside of missionary that any Christian can have. Right. <laughs> uh, and so I pursued this. I got a job at a church in Florida. I, I won't say the name still um, just because I'm not trying to get sued because they're assholes. Uh, but it was in Boca Raton, Florida. It uh, is a church that started in New York City. And I was offered a job there as a uh, teaching pastor. Uh, my The long title was like pastor of growth groups and assimilation and teaching. <laughs> so I did a bunch of stuff there. And that's really for me where uh, things started to go downhill. I mean, within a few weeks of, you know, packing up and moving Noel and I from Maryland to South Florida, leaving all of our friends and family behind, um, I realized that this church was not good. Um, I dealt, that's where I dealt with a lot of uh, spiritual abuse, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, uh, borderline physical abuse, 
um, crazy stories that we can, you know, go into more detail um, after my little summary. And that's where things started to crack open for me. I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Something is not right. And I, I try to find other people um, that were having similar experiences. And this is when I got connected to like the Bad Christian podcast back like, you know, more so in their earlier days when it was still Matt, Toby and Joey. They were, you know, still kind of these pastors who had been harmed talking about that. And they were really helpful. And that led me, you know, I, w- I wasn't so jaded at Christianity, more so just like, fuck this church, this specific church sucks and um, continued my study. Right. I was still a nerd. I still listened to a ton of like um, really cool podcasts, uh, you know, read theology books still all the time. I was still kind of building that fortress of faith, just kind of with this now internal uh, crisis that started to, you know, bubble up under the surface. This is kind of where it starts, you know, um, ended up leaving that church, uh, after a lot of pain and, and, and hardship there, I was there for about eight months. Um, that's really where I developed, uh, depression and really bad anxiety, uh, was there. So I left, um, and took a job at a Methodist church and as a youth pastor. So I, I did that for like a year and a half and that church was There was some healing that happened there, but also that church was a shit show in its own right. Um, It was like working in a soap opera. (laughs) Like the staff relations was just not good. And then the congregants, you know, um, it caused issues. And then like looking back, I was still like an arrogant prick that was, you know, um, living out of a place of a lot of hurt and anger and frustration. And I was taking that out in ways that wasn't healthy. So I'm, you know, just as guilty for contributing to the issues present in that church, but also a lot of things were done to me that were not cool. Um, and there as well as where I, you know, started to, you know, continued that process of unlearning some things, still studying theology, but definitely starting to lean more progressively. Um, this is where I like finally was in a place where I could be honest and, you know, and opening and affirming uh, the LGBT community because this church was like that. Uh, my best, you know, one of my best friends, Chad, uh, was the worship pastor at the church. He's an openly gay man. Um, so that, you know, experience was helpful in that regards. And then that still was a shitty situation. And so we ended up, uh, I was like, all right, God, I'll do one more church thing, like three strikes and you're out kind of thing. And so we ended up moving back to Maryland uh, earlier than we originally attended. I took a a gig at a church that I will name because it was fantastic uh, called Seneca Creek Community Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland. And that church brought so much healing um, to me. The staff was great. Pastor Mark uh, is fantastic, uh, put up with a lot of my bullshit. And I felt like I could ask um, questions in front of him. I was still very guarded. I didn't feel I could be fully open uh, with some of my thoughts because my job (laughs) was on the line and my livelihood. Uh, But still Mark and Jeanette created such a, a a safe and open place for me, uh, brought a lot of healing, um, gave me a lot of trust and that kind of stuff. And uh, that was really cool experience. And I was, I was there for, I think again, about a year and a half, maybe a little bit longer, maybe closer to two years. Um, But I really, that's when my deconstruction really kind of took off. Um, when I was really started asking these big existential questions, um, wrestling deep, deeply and heavily with things like atonement theory and soteriology and eschatology and like the LGBTQ stuff, but then also like 
um, just finding a place where I'm like, okay, all these ideas are great, but like, where's the transformation? And this is where I started like reading the mystics and getting involved more with like the more contemplative aspects of faith. And that's really when I started this internal dissonance really just kind of was really bubbling up and overflowing. And I was just so out of line. I felt like a fraud. Like if these people knew what was going on inside of me, they would not let me be a pastor here. Like I can't do this anymore. So I was living in this fake world, uh, heavily depressed, um, tons of anxiety still. And eventually that's when I was like, yeah, I just, I don't, I can't do this pastor thing anymore. Um, and it kind of took me like almost eight months, I guess around that much time of, uh, maybe six months, uh, six to eight months of like spiritual direction with an amazing spiritual director named Sid, uh, who helped me, um, discern through that process of like leaving pastoral ministry, um, helping me separate my identity from my vocation. Cause I had conflated the two, um, and stuff like that. So ended up eventually leaving, uh, taking a job as a bartender, uh, very quickly became the GM <laughs> at this place. I still remember like, uh, posting about like, oh, I'm so honored and blessed to be the GM of, you know, 1623 Brewing. And like a pastor friend of mine just commented like, hashtag leaders lead. And I was like, oh, I made me feel gross. <laughs> like I appreciated what he was saying, but also like it, it didn't sit right at the same time. And uh, my process continued to to go there. And um, especially being in a quote unquote secular world and realizing that like, this kind of shit that we're arguing about in the church, like these people don't care about society has already moved on from this. <laughs> like, yes, racism is bad. Yes. Women are people too. Yes. The LGBTQ community should, you know, be allowed to exist. And so like all these kind of things that I was wrestling with, these people were like, yeah, of course. Um, so that kind of continued, you know, continued in that um, I was still podcasting, Actually, the podcast started when I like after I left uh, the first church I worked at when I was at the Methodist Church. So that's kind of when that started um, with my buddy Andy, uh, and uh, that derailed me. Um, yeah. So then I like hated being a GM for a lot of the same reasons I hated being a pastor, and so I quit doing that. Um, it was again that internal external reality were just not lining up, so I stopped. I became a bartender. Uh, there again, which was gracious of them to allow me to do, but then eventually ended up taking a job at Peabody Heights here in Baltimore, where I learned how to brew and then was poached by Full Tilt Brewing. And that's where I am now. <laughs> and uh, I love it there. Um, but again, yeah, my journey has just continued to to go and evolve uh, throughout all that time. I definitely had my like hardcore deconstruction phase. Um, I still think that there are aspects of you know, faith and such that still would fit into that category. Although, you know, I'm not super big on using that, that word deconstruction, um, but fair enough. And, uh, but now I'm just in a, in a much different place. Um, I have a really dark time uh, for a couple months when I was at full tilt, where I was just really in what my therapist called uh existential crisis and ontological uncertainty, <laughs> um, which I just, you know, friendships like the one with yours, Greg, um, 
really helped me kind of push through that, you know, reading the mystics and, and the more contemplative people that are like, no, don't, don't run away from the darkness, lean into it. Like you have to go through it. Um, and so really experiencing that and then just coming out on the other side where um, I don't know what I believe most days, but also I'm okay with that. I've kind of um, obtained this uh, deep uh, internal peace. I think that comes from experiential knowledge of the divine um, to the point where I know like I'm okay. And uh, even though there's so much shit that's fucked up, like, like life's okay, even when it's not. <laughs> um, and that at the end of the day, everything's going to be fine. So I have this like deep uh, peace. Um, I've integrated a lot of like Buddhism and Buddhist practice and philosophies into my uh, faith currently. Um, I still hold on to the word Christian, although if I'm honest, like where I'm at right now, I'm playing with the idea of like, is that even necessary? Um, and I think I'm at a place where I'm comfortable um, not having to claim that if it doesn't feel right. Um, I still find Jesus deeply compelling though, which is probably why I still hold on to that title. Um, but I don't see honestly, uh, any purpose in me going to church. <laughs> I did a couple times, you know, um, to an Episcopal church and it was great and it was healing, but I don't have much desire to, to do that. Um, yeah, now here I am podcasting. So that was a long answer, but that's kind of a, an overview that we can zoom in and out on different aspects. Dude, that's great. 30,000 foot, man. Thank you. Thank you for that. And, uh, dude, I've got, I, 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 like we do with our podcast, we, we don't come with many questions. We do our research, but we don't, we have our basic 30,000 foot framework, but, but not a lot of questions, but as always, I've got a million questions and forgive me if you hear some background noise, that's it's pouring down rain here in North Carolina. Uh, no but that just makes it a peaceful, peaceful background <laughs> yes. rain, rain soundtrack. Um, okay. So, so one of the first first questions I have is just that just a how amazing that you have parents that would be affirming to Jordan and whereas as you said in your story how many probably of our listeners and other people had just completely painful unsupportive environments where if they came out uh, they would be completely rejected or that the parents would have the the, the brutal compulsion to put a child through conversion therapy, which we, now we all know is complete horseshit. But back then, uh, Christians actually thought in their paradigm they were doing good. Ooh, gives me, makes me nauseous uh, thinking about the harm done from that. Um, so, so I just think it's, it's an amazing uh, kind of family foundational springboard that you had parents model love over acceptance. Uh, that, and what I mean by that is maybe that's not the right word, love over belonging. That's, that's better that they would choose to love you and your brothers, uh, your, your brother who's gay, your brother who's pan, that they would choose to honor and care for them and affirm them over belonging to a group, which I think is rare, unfortunately. And so how huge is that? So uh, almost already you, you saw modeled for you the capacity to put love over belonging and shrouded in this is the right belief structure but really the impulse is belonging so how huge that is so I, I think that was almost like a a superpower of attachment and identity 
uh, woven into your uh, family system uh, that that I wonder, I just wonder the capacity, that's the strength that that's given you to walk the journey that you've walked uh, yeah. starting at such a young age. Yeah. And, and I mean, shout out, you know, mom and dad uh, for being willing to do that and modeling that because I like also and in that time, too, like I didn't clarify this, but my parents, they more so my dad than my mom, but they were asking like theologically, like, is this OK? But they were willing to like bracket that and say, this is still my son. And so like they it's not like they just forsook and like overlooked things because like they grew up being taught that it was wrong and like that's you know whatever but then once it became an experience for them when it's like their kid they're like holy shit this is my kid like i'm not like fuck you this is my son (laughs) and i love them so my parents took that uh took that step or took that position and were were willing to bracket the beliefs and ideas that they had been handed and 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 actually be like well my experience is telling me something different let's look into this um and I even, I don't know. I mean, my mom is definitely open and affirming. Um, my dad is supportive, but I don't know, like, theologically if he, like, where he's at. Um, but also my parents aren't nerds that sit around and think about this shit all the time. Like, I do. <laughs> so, um, but still loving and supporting it. And my family uh, as a whole, you know, my grandparents, everybody. So um, kudos to to them. Yeah. Yeah. Major kudos. I mean, uh just and and again i think of how many people are not willing to kind of intrinsically place love uh above belonging and so they don't have the capacity to bracket Uh, and even bracket i know is a painful thing uh of not authentically affirming from the inside out but that's the process right that's a great especially for people you know your parents age my parents age they grew up in environments where it wasn't even questioned it was just sin uh, and yet they were willing in the experience of it. And that's often how it happens, right? But that, that is that LGBTQ is not just a concept, but it's someone we love. And that's what breaks through the barriers. Um, but you said something too in that process where I don't know, we've talked about this some, but uh, you were building your fortress of faith. Uh, and so, so I, I just think that's worth just breaking down that concept uh, because I think it's, 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 uh, one that exists in many uh, different ecosystems of spirituality. Uh, and then also kind of ha- what happened when you were building your fortress of faith and then it bumped into that uh, church system of Boca Raton. Again, you kind of said it was a particularly shitty church situation that didn't have you necessarily question Christianity in mass uh, uh, as a whole system. But kind of a talk about talk about the concept of fortress of faith and what you were building and then what happened when it started bumping into uh ugly reality yeah so when i say like building my fortress of faith um what i'm getting at is just this you know i was living and operating out of a paradigm and a set of ideas that said okay josh if you have the right information if you have the correct atonement theory, if you have the correct soteriology, if you have the correct ecclesiology, if you know the Bible exactly, if you have the right interpretation, basically, if you have the correct building blocks, the right ideas, then your faith is going to be solid and unshakable. And this is the goal, right? This is what I was taught like discipleship is like, just learn the right stuff, read the right 
books, the right people, you know, uh, also, which oftentimes meant read the white people. Um, and, uh, you know, these are, you know, these are the people you can read. These are who you don't. So, okay, cool. So I was just zealous, you know, and I wanted to build my fortress. I wanted to have the right ideas. Um, I wanted to be the person that, you know, someone could say something and be like, well, actually, if you go back to the Nicene Creed or, you know, whatever, um, and like be that kind of douchebag. <laughs> I was that. I really was. Hopefully I'm not that anymore. Um, but that's what I mean by that. I was building the correct ideas, the correct beliefs, the correct doctrines, because I was right. And I was going to be the best Christian because I had all the right ideas. And then I could, if I could communicate all of the right ideas to other people, then they too would become, you know, the best Christian on fire for the Lord and whatever. Um, so that's what I mean by that. And when I got to the church in Boca, um, it was clear to me that they didn't care about that as much. Like the, it was a very shallow church. You know what I mean? Um, and they would say things like, Oh, well, like we're for seekers. And so like, we just have to give them spiritual infants milk. Um, but really what it was, was like prosperity gospel in disguise, uh, lots of, Hey, here's why you should give us money. And then other like bullshit trite Christian answers that like you find on like, I call it like greeting card Christianity. Like you go into the store and find like a greeting card and open it. And, you know, it's like says dumb shit. Um, that's all this church was. So like that was interesting to me. And I kind of would bump heads uh, with people because I would like, you know, the pastor would write a sermon and I would be like, yo, uh, homie, this is just this is heretical. <laughs> like this is wrong. And he didn't even know why. Like he they didn't have the. um I don't know. They, they, he wasn't learned. He, he didn't study, he didn't read the way that I did. And so I couldn't have a conversation with him. Um, and that kind of actually made me more arrogant because I was like, Oh, I really know what's up in this, you know, freaking idiot. Um, which also I think was a coping mechanism because of how poorly I was treated there. Um, I mean, I'll just give you some examples. Uh, you know, well, Marty, who used to be the, the podcast, uh, co-host, um, Marty and I worked there together. That's where I met him. And we kind of were almost like uh, life rafts, for example, or for uh, each other. And would kind of like uh, cling to each other in that regard. And, and the head pastor knew that. So what he would do is like, he would call Marty into his office and be like, all right, Marty, here's what I'm going to tell Joshua. Here's why I'm disciplining him. And here's what you're going to say to him. Okay. And call me in the office and then do this thing. And so it was triangulation is what that's called. They would do shit like that. And then Marty would text me afterwards, like, dude, please forgive me. Know that this is not me saying these things, but like, I have a, you know, Marty was a dad uh, with, you know, married, but like his wife stayed home and watched their four kids. So like his job was depending on this. Uh, so he was being abused in this situation as well, right? Um, I would be told things like, you know, uh, I was five minutes late back to the office one time uh, off of, you know, from having lunch with my wife after church service on Sunday, because we had to go back to the office and work until 5 p.m. on Sundays after church service. Right. Um, and after that, I was told you are no longer allowed to go to lunch with your wife after church. It is forbidden. You will come back to the office and you will eat, eat lunch here. Um, so like those kind of things. Um, I had an experience where the head pastor or um, the founding pastor uh, 
basically mixed up two theological words and I told him he was wrong. <laughs> and um, actually I showed first Jason, I sh- whatever, I showed Jason first why this guy, this other guy was wrong. And um, he was like, oh yeah, you're right. And then emailed the founding pastor and was like, hey dude, here's this thing, blah, blah, blah. And the founding pastor was like, no, like ignore Josh, whatever. And so I went and emailed the founding pastor and was like, can you explain to me why I'm wrong about this? I got called into Jason's office like that five minutes after that and reamed out, like screamed at finger in the face. Like I could feel his breath (laughs) on my face, screaming at me. Um, You know, how dare you go over me and behind my back to my superior and da, 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 da. And can't you tell I'm only trying to protect you from this founding pastor, right? Things like that would happen. And, uh, or like one time I had to write a performance review and, um, in my performance review, I said that, uh, my boss, um, was abrasive and I didn't appreciate his abrasive style of leadership. So this man, before I turned in the thing, I had to turn it into him first so he could approve my performance evaluation. And, um, before it got sent to the board, which was just like him and the other pastors at the church. So, so much for a board, but, uh, anyway, he comes into my office. I like stand up. Oh, hey, what's going on? I was like, sit down, stands over me. It's like, you really, you're going to put on your thing that I'm abrasive. That's really how you want to describe like being abrasive, <laughs> yelling at me and made me change it. Made me like get on my computer and change that with him standing over my shoulder. Um, so these kind of events where he would yell and scream at me were constant. And then he would gaslight me about it. The next day he would come into his office and be like, Hey, Josh, um, I'm just, I need to let you know that I apologize for how I spoke to you yesterday. I really know how deeply you feel and how this affects you. And so I just need to apologize because I know it causes you a lot of pain and hardship. Do you accept my apology? And like, he would do that over and over and over again, right? So shit like that, um, you know, just, and I could go on and on. Um, I mean, he like would come in and like throw stuff off my desk, like crazy stuff, uh, lie to the congregation about money in front of like the whole congregation. Like one time we were in a financial campaign and, um, we, uh, basically we renewed the lease on our copy machine. And so the copy machine company was like, Oh, thank you. Here's a, you know, $5,000 gift for sticking with us. So what they do is they go to the congregation like, Hey, we just got word this morning, you know, here comes the tears, that God has brought a donor, a unanimous donor from our church forward, who's offering $5,000. But here's the catch. We have to match it. If we don't match it in our offering today, then they're not going to give it. And so like that kind of shit, <laughs> crazy. And so what was happening for me is my, I, this actually caused me to double down and harden in on building my fortress of faith because I was going to prove those fuckers wrong. Um, so it didn't break for me Christianity. It actually had an opposite effect. It pushed me into becoming even more head centric, even more interested in theology. I'm going to learn all the right stuff to show these people they're wrong. Um, and so that was kind of the relationship when they started bumping up. Um, 
but also at the same time, that's when I, you know, began to de- develop uh, depression and anxiety. I mean, I still <laughs> have issues uh, today. It's much lesser um, than it was with male authority figures. Um, like when I worked at the at, at Seneca Creek, I had to have a conversation with Mark and be honest with him. I was like, Mark, when you text me and say, hey, can you come meet me in my office? That kills me. <laughs> like my heart sinks you know, it starts racing, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Basically, I have trauma responses, um, affective trauma responses to this kind of stuff, um, just based off of how it was treated, you know, at, at the first church. Um, so that that developed there. And that kind of um, is when some of that internal external alignments first started to bubble up for me. Although I didn't recognize it as that at the time, I just thought like, man, this church fucking sucks. I need to get out of this bad one because surely the rest aren't like this either so mm. that's the does that make sense yeah thank you for all of that man for that's that's raw and brutal and i know the way that you're not just retelling a story cognitively but i'm i know that you probably just had a lot of cortisol and adrenaline uh shoot through your whole fucking system could you see it in my body language and in my face and my eyes you were not just telling a story man you're you're reliving trauma uh, but for the sake of uh, vulnerability and authenticity, so thank you for that, man. And and I'm with you in my own journey. I mean, I, I mean, I've I've been going to therapy for, gosh, I'm 50 now. I've been going for decades, uh, and in my own journey too. Like, uh, I, I for probably 20 years, I would only see female therapists. Like, yeah, I just like I I just felt safer uh, in that. I, I'm proud to say my latest therapist is a, is a is a guy. Uh, and, uh, but just in my own journey, I, I say, I'm proud to say that just because it just speaks to my own evolution of the willingness to have someone an authority, uh, kind of speak into my life. Um, but, but there, there's so much in that process of unpacking, especially that wound, but so, so, okay. So, so you left that, you left Boca, uh, on a body level, you were experiencing depression, anxiety. So even on a cognitive level, you were saying, I'm going to lock this shit down. Even my fortress of faith is going to be even be more solid. So cognitively, you're like, I'm, these guys are asses. I'm solid. Uh, I've got to get out of here. But on a body level, you're experiencing trauma, uh, pain that eventually would kind of create, would match where, where your brain would actually catch up to with what your body was experiencing. That was, it was more than just, uh, these are a handful of Christians that are, uh jerks or assholes but that or abusive but uh so so you left that church um wounded uh having uh, and, yeah. and probably cognitively cognitively confident uh on a body based not so confident ex- you know because your body doesn't lie uh in terms of its experience um our heads our our heads can get pretty detached from our bodies uh, and rationalize things and so when it went from there did you uh, begin to think the fortress of faith, the idea that if you could just have your head wrapped around these concepts, and I, I think that is, and just as a quick side note, I think it's also kind of one of the struggles of someone with a, uh, a fancy brain, uh, and you probably, you're, you're going to grimace at me calling you fancy brain, but I think it's 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 one of the the, the struggles of someone with a fancy brain that it's, it's, uh, it's, I think, sometimes easy to live more in the realm of the ideas uh and 
And that's reinforced by our cultural context. And if you can just get enough knowledge and synthesize it, then you'll have the solidity to deal with whatever bullshit comes up. So when did, you know, from, from there, after Boca, you, you, you talked about then moving, was what was the next church again? You you said uh, after Boca? It was Boca? Uh, a Methodist church in the, the uh, West Methodist Palm church. Beach. Yeah. That's right. And then after the Methodist church, you moved back up to Maryland and we're at yeah. uh, Seneca, Seneca, which yeah. I lived in Gaithersburg. I lived in Gaithersburg, I think, five years uh but this was way back in the 80s so that was before you were born i know that's not true but that was a long, long time ago uh probably way before seneca existed so talk about wh when was when that process of the methodist church and then seneca uh and i know you're you're you said at seneca your your deconstruction started in earnestness um but through that process when did you actually feel like a you you started to move beyond just the realm of the fortress of faith into who the fuck am I really? And, and what do I really believe? And was that Seneca or, you know, kind of like what happened to the Methodist church to begin to be part of the lily pad process for you to actually begin to shift from outside into inside out. And what I mean from that is from defining yourself by external frameworks and belief systems to actually having the audacity and I would say faith to ask yourself the question, what do I actually believe? What do I, Josh, actually believe? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I'll try I'll try to trace uh, through both of those places. Um, and so I, to just like <laughs> to, to say one more thing about the first church I was at, I remember when I left, um, I was told why I was leaving. Um, if that makes sense, I wasn't allowed to say why I actually was. Um, it was shaped and it was forced out of me, you know? So my, re even my resignation letter wasn't real. You know, it was them telling me why I'm resigning. And then they went to the congregation was like, yeah, you know, we're so excited that pastor Josh is moving on. He grew up in the Methodist church and is really just trying to get back to his roots and we wish him all the best. Um, which is very different from then what I was told the next day uh, after that Sunday, the Monday, which was my last day, uh, which was, I got called into the office backed into the corner literally again finger in the face josh if you ever do or say anything to cause harm to this church i personally will ensure that you never work in ministry again and then Good lord after Good. that yeah the insanity the audacity <laughs> the areas yeah, sorry man i just had to make no, you jump in there what the holy hell okay sorry go ahead right and then after that this guy backs up takes a breath and then says, come here, give me a hug. And then gives me a hug and then leaves. What? <laughs> Dude. I was in the office by myself, took all my shit out. Good my Lord. Right. Right. Um, oh, and, and also uh, he told me, Hey, make sure you uh, show those people over at the Methodist church, how uh, church is actually done. And then winked at me. Um, so that was that, right. Talk about just insane. Uh, but so I'm at this Methodist church, and I think the beauty of the Methodist church is it taught me the importance of orthopraxy in actually embodying and living out our faith because they were very good at that. <laughs> uh, they did a lot of amazing things. They had this huge um, ministry for homeless people, and they fed thousands of people every week, and they had like these community uh, dinner nights, and they had this thriving, amazing um ministry called through the roof ministries and pat shout out pastor phyllis if you ever stumble your way into rethinking faith and listening to this phyllis like 
I told it to her face, but through the roof was the best thing at the Methodist church that it was the best thing going for it. It's a ministry for, um, uh, people who I'm going to mess up the PC way of saying it, uh, developmentally, uh, disabled, uh, people who, um, uh, have different, you know, like are on the spectrum or have down syndrome, um, or, you know, cerebral palsy, whatever, uh, a ministry that was amazing. It's my favorite thing to be a part of at that church. So that is all so positive and good and, and beautiful. But the staff culture behind closed doors was just a whole nother thing. People were at each other's throats. The whole triangulation thing was happening, but in like, not just with one people, like multiple people, the staff, uh, the people were like backstabbing, like it was just nuts. It was not a healthy relational place to be. And um, while I was there though, it that place actually gave me, it was a more progressive, right? So mainline Protestant denomination. Uh, they tend to be a little bit more progressive in theology, more about love and acceptance. Uh, they were affirming, open and affirming to the LGBTQ community. Uh, so there were gay couples that came to the church. Uh, there were gay students in the youth group. The worship pastor was openly gay, right? Uh, there were trans people that that attended the church. So beautiful, right? Um, all of those things were really cool. And that actually started to open me up a little bit more. Uh, you know, the, the, the pastor was a woman, <laughs> which I never really had problem with the whole women in ministry bit because I grew up like the first pastor I can remember having was a, a lady. So that was never weird to me. Um, I wasn't indoctrinated. I didn't come across those kind of women can't be pastors arguments until I was much older. And then I was just like, well, that's stupid. Like I've had a few women pastors. I don't know what to tell you. They're like, they exist. What do you want me to do? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that, but it, it, it kind of gave me permission to start um, asking questions about things. So that's, I started to explore a little bit more there. Um, nothing crazy, right? Uh, but I started to explore like sexual ethics a little bit more there um, and got more involved in like, okay, I look at my bookshelf and all the authors on my bookshelf are educated white cisgender males. Uh, that's not good. <laughs> I should learn from other voices. So it opened me up to that world, right? Um, so that was kind of a, a, a time of like fun and exploring. I was, I was learning new things and finding new voices within the Christian faith and tradition. Um, and my earnestness was still there. I was still trying to build my fortress, right? I still thought that um, I was smarter than everybody on staff theologically <laughs> and that, um, you know, I was an ass in that regard, um, but it, it opened me up to exploring, uh, which was really cool. And then I kind of, uh, like I said, ended up leaving there and going to Seneca Creek where really it's my earnestness. It was my desire to find truth and Jesus that actually led me into what people call deconstruction. Uh, because I started to notice after all these doors were open to me that like, wait a minute, the Catholics, they were here way before us protestants and y'all keep telling me they're not christians but like you came from them so are you guys not christians either <laughs> because like that's the movement you came out of like i'm confused so it's like wait a minute no these catholics they're they're christians too like um or, or things like that right and so i started reading these different people and started reading like liberation theology and queer theology and and black theology whatever which um by the way i just want to make a, a point that uh, they bring up on Bible for normal people a lot. Um, Jared always talks about how all theology 
um, has an adjective in front of it, or at least it should, right? If you look at like the course catalog for a college, it'll be like systematic theology, theology one, two, and three. Oh, and then there's these electives, black theology, queer, whatever. And so what it's saying is like, oh, our Eurocentric, like white cisgender male theology, that's the thing that's normative. That's real theology. Everything else has an adjective, uh, which is bullshit, right? That, you know, stuff that you're just calling theology has an adjective too. It's called white theology, white Eurocentric cisgender male theology. That's what it is. Um, so anyway, I got exposed to stuff outside of that. And when I started reading and seeing how deep and wide the Christian tradition was, that's when things started to break for me. Um, once I started reading like historic Jesus you know, studies and like reading these extra, these books that are outside of the biblical canon and uh, things like that, it really, it started to break. Cause I was like, this fortress of faith that I've been building is actually just a house of cards. It's bullshit because I'm building a fortress of faith in one tiny, small speck of Christian faith and tradition and being arrogant enough to say that, like, this is the whole thing what? <laughs> and so that kind of um, started to break things for me. But since my entire worldview and life had been dedicated to me finding the right answers and being the right answer guy, right, with all the correct doctrine, it shattered things for me. So, you know, cue deconstruction. Now I'm like, well, I don't fucking know what's right. There's three different ways people think about hell. There's 97 different atonement theories. There's, you know, like there's high ecclesiology, there's lower ecclesiology. Uh, people argue over like super lapsarianism and like, like what? Like, come on. I don't like, what is it? Is Calvin right? Right. Or is our buddy Tom Ward right? Cause they both can't be right. Um, I mean, I think uh, process theology is the way to go, but um, what do I do with this? So it was actually through my study and my earnestness that led into my questioning. Um, and that, does that make sense? I'll stop there. That makes that, yeah. sense. No, 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 no. Let me just jump. I just want to jump in with a particular question because uh, I, I'm just curious at the, so, so down in Boca, you were experiencing depression, anxiety, right? This is where your body uh, was metabolizing the reality of the complete abusive shit show uh, of the ecosystem that you were functioning in, right? Rationally, you were trying to work it out and just saying these people just don't represent true Christianity. Their theology is shit. It's uh, single serve, superficial uh, conversion seeker stuff. Uh, then you you went to the Methodist Church, uh, then up to Seneca. When and again, it it sounds like because I think you're such a head type. And by that, I mean, I think that you're very smart. And both of us are, I think, anyone in the West, I think, defaults to uh, the intellect, to the cognitive process. Um, but but of course, then we have our inner world and our outer world. Uh, you're, when did you feel like you begin to have some healing of that dissonance? Of your, this is what your body was feeling. This is what your body was experiencing. Uh, and then uh, you started you started maybe intellectually opening to systems that actually felt resonant on a body level. Is that too esoteric? Do you know what I'm talking about? I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so I think that actually probably started for me definitely at Seneca Creek more explicitly. But I think 
some of it started at the Methodist church too, right? Because once I had this relationship and friendship with uh, Chad and then the other, um, you know, people who identify within the LGBTQ community in the church, that was an experiential thing. That was not my intellect. That was a time when I was like, well, my intellect says one thing, but my experience is saying something completely different. And these people are my friends and I love them. And, you know, watching Chad lead worship on a Sunday morning for somebody to tell me that, you know, to use very Christian language here, the Holy Spirit uh, wasn't active and present uh, in and through Chad um, and in that space, like I'd have to lie, right? Like it was, Chad is gifted at that. Um, And so that kind of, that was more of a heart thing uh, where I actually was like, well, I'm going to push my mind aside for a little bit and go with here. Um, So it started there, but then at Seneca Creek, uh, Jeanette, uh, Pastor Jeanette, which was who I reported to directly, she uh, was kind of one that kind of opened me up a little bit more to that world, you know, Um, she would like talk that way in meetings with me and ask me about things like that. But then really it was when I got connected with Jesus collective um, and started having sessions with uh, Sid, cause they gave us like one free session or something like that. It, might, it might've been three uh, free sessions with Sid in this like online learning group thing that I did. Um, and Sid is actually the one that started to open me up to that. But um, I still had this idea in my head of who God was. and. I could say things like God loves you. And I believe that. Right. But I never, I didn't think that meant me. Um, And also I didn't want to meet this guy because God sounded like an asshole. Uh, I was like, that guy's scary. I don't, nope. Don't want to hang out with him. Um, And so it was actually through my intellect that I opened myself up to like open and relational theology. I, you know, very much have Tom Ord and his work, Um, you know, the uncontrolling love of God, Uh, really kind of gave me permission to um, have a God that is love. And so open and relational theology intellectually gave me the space where I was then able to actually open my heart (laughs) fully um, to experience of the divine. And that's when I started getting into the contemplative practices um, and the the mystics and things like that was at Seneca Creek. And um, as I was doing that, becoming more in touch with my, my body and my heart. That's when I really noticed that internal stuff was so fucked up and out of whack. That's when Mm. I started, when I started digging in, that's when I started to notice, uh, I don't feel very much like a a pastor, uh, all these pastors around me. Cause I was very outspoken at this time. Um, and Seneca Creek, you know, provided me space to do this, but I would like, you know, I was in like the cage stage deconstruction mode, right? Like, you know, they talk about cage stage Calvinists. Um, I'm in that cage stage deconstruction mode where I'm like, you know, and you can go back on this podcast and hear me speak this way. I'm like, fuck the church and fuck this and blah, blah, blah. And all this kind of stuff. It was just anger. It was just anger and my hatred and my trauma, basically that I was projecting outwards. Um, I was broken down. I was a broken person projecting that anger and, and, and hatred outwards. Um, but that internal stuff, just, just to, just to highlight and emphasize what you're saying, because I think it's, and not to interrupt you, but to affirm the, the, the knowledge and the wisdom of what you're just defining that way that I think, and we've, we've talked about this some before, but, um, 
it's it's so easy. Uh, it's first of all, it's an essential step in our own evolution and process that when we begin to grow out of something, especially a, a fear-based system, a repressive system, an abusive system, um, that we've been taught is this is what God says. This is truth. This is reality. And if you and and then have fear attached to it. If you leave this, then you're worst case going to hell. But at the very least, getting rejected. That that it's a very appropriate and healthy thing to go through that cage stage, right? Just to say, you almost have to say, fuck this. And at that point, all of your energy is going towards ripping apart what has been. Uh, and burn it you down. almost have tear to do it that. Down. Yes. <laughs> Just burn it down, tear it down. But it's it's, it's almost like, like a, a, a cocoon or a chrysalis. Like you built it originally for your own evolution and growth. But at one point in your development, if you stay in that chrysalis any longer, it literally will suffocate you and kill you. And then you have to rip the fucking chrysalis apart uh, to get out of it. Uh, the, the sad thing is when, uh, and I think this is what you're describing, I think that I, I've seen many people get stuck here where people get stuck in the phase of ripping apart. Uh, I think it's actually pretty safe. It's 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 easy to be angry and, and ripping shit apart than it is to actually then move to the next lily pad, which is, okay, the terror of no longer defining yourself by your past in terms of ripping that apart, but then opening up to what's possible in the future. Um, but just to say, for, for you to identify that distinction, that you were in that phase, that season. Um, and A, I just think we have to affirm that phase and that season. That's not a bad thing. It is, it's a necessary step in our evolution. But then it's also, simultaneously, we have to acknowledge that how many friends do we have that are stuck there um that that are stuck in the ripping down phase um and and not willing to move past it and still angrily defining themselves from the past instead of opening up and i still now that being said i i've been an episcopal i've, I've been in the episcopal church now for 12 years uh and after i moved out of the pca uh, I've, you know, I've been ripped apart. I mean, people from my old community still call me persona non grata, backslid, not saved, uh, li capital L liberal. And those are the nice words. I've been called the antichrist uh, to my face and all sorts of things. But and I've really tried to do a lot of work to this day, though, I still get triggered if I'm around uh, some of the fundamentalist or evangelical theology, if I hear it on a body level. I fucking cringe uh, and it takes so much work for me to remain present and not burn down the house uh, in that moment. But anyway, so, so all that to say, I, I just want to highlight the, the wisdom of you articulating that that's your experience. And then that was your season. All right. So that you were at this point where you finally uh, were beginning to tear that stuff down because you were looking inside and feeling the repression the anxiety, the decades of uh, dissonance between your authentic heart and what you had embodied and lived out, and that you were projecting that hurt and that anger outwardly, in some ways appropriate, in some ways probably unhelpful. But so, so where did you go? Where did you go from there? Yeah. Um, well, thanks for highlighting that. I'm, I'm going to say something about that too, really quickly, um, and listeners. Uh, please hear this <laughs> with loving grace, because I know my uh, my enthusiasm might come off as me being a dick. So please forgive me. Um, but one of the reasons I get so frustrated with a lot of the deconstruction stuff today is because it still stays in these angry places. 
um, and hateful and tear down places. And it's and like clickbaity, like book titles and like podcast titles and stuff. And what's annoying about that to me is like, well, one, first off, it's easy, by the way, if we just started doing episodes where we talk shit about people, our listenership would skyrocket. That is easy. It is fucking easy to throw rocks at stuff, especially at shitty systems that like it's low hanging fruit, right? <laughs> it's easy to do that. It's actually difficult to, to recognize what those things did to you, do the actual internal work that brings transformation and then live into something different. And, you know, I used to get mad at people who would be like, oh, like you have to reconstruct, you have to reconstruct. And that's not what I'm saying, uh, listeners. I'm not saying you have to reconstruct, especially if that means you have to reconstruct into Christianity. But what I am saying, and this is what I think the kicker is, when you continue to live within that deconstruction mindset, you are still allowing yourself to be defined by a system that you don't fucking agree with anymore. <laughs> you are allow you're allowing yourself to be defined by that system still. You're just saying I'm not that thing. We're like, cool, then stop fucking saying you're not that thing and go be something different. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be Christianity. I'm fine with that. I think God, the spirit, the divine, whatever is big enough that like you don't have to reconstruct and be a Christian. Um, but stop allowing that system to define you uh, because that's only going to keep you caged. It's only going to keep you in a space that is small and you're just going to continue to allow your past to define you. Stop it, please. <laughs> I know it's easier said than done. And that's why I care. So I'm not trying to be a dick or like say that your journey doesn't matter because it does. You need to have that stage. And for some people, that stage lasts a long time and that's fine. Um, but for me, when I realized that it's, I was still allowing that system to define me, that's when I was like, oh, okay, cool. I'm done. Um, anyway, end of Josh preaching. Uh, I went into no, past, just, pastor mode a little bit. And <laughs> <laughs> I actually, you, you couldn't see it, but I was actually like raising my hand and pointing. Yeah. Right on. Because I just am, am so yeah, resonant inter- with that. Your, your Pentecostal side came out. Right? I did. Look, I man, I'm an Episcopalian, man. I'm, I'm, <laughs> no, yeah, dude, I'm Episcopalian. So we're not exactly emotive historically, but you got me all excited. I about started spinning around in my swivel chair. But uh, but it, it reminds me, and I know it's a famous quote, but I think I think it's by Nelson Mandela that, you know, uh, resentment is the poison we drink, hoping it harms our enemies. And 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 it's it's, again, it's the same thing. And when we hold on to resentment, in that space. And I think there's a season for it. There's a season for the, uh, the, the appropriate anger, uh, as a response to the hurt. But when we hold on to that, we're still allowing our entire lives to be defined by the very system that we're rejecting. And, uh, and I did that for a while and I still, and I still, to this day, I find that again, what I was talking about when, when I'm around evangelicals, um, that, uh, launch out a fear-based system or an exclusive claim or anything that's fear-based or especially anything that's, uh, shutting down women or LGBTQ. Um, it, it, it triggers me in a way that, um, I wish it didn't. Um, it, it, again, it makes me, it makes me, um, I know where they're coming from and I, and I know the, the weak points in the armor and it makes me want to uh, burn down the house and harm them. And I'm not proud of that, but that's, so I'm still doing my work, right? I'm still doing my work. And I mainly just keep my mouth shut in, in this current stage of my evolution. But I think that that's the piece. The, the invitation is ultimately what you're describing is to be set free. Um, and, 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 
and however long that takes. And, and again, it's been decades for me, but what that looks like to be set free from these systems that harmed us uh, to really define ourselves by something new and beautiful. So it sounds like Josh, in, in your evolution, in your journey, when you reach Seneca uh, Creek, it, it, it created a safe space uh, for you to begin to experience uh, some, uh, at the very least, permission to genuinely ask these questions uh, on intellectual level. But also, I'm guessing it sounds like, too, the way that you were welcomed, uh, that you were you felt safe on a body level, on a heart level, that you were with in an environment, in an ecosystem, in a greenhouse that... Uh, of course, no place is perfect. Uh, every place is a, a human complex institution, but you were in a space that allowed you to actually maybe begin to, on a body level, to feel safe and to begin to unpack that. So so kind of describe from there, as as you went from um, recognizing that you were uh, projecting a lot of your hurt and anger uh, and in kind of this uh, intense deconstruction, kind of what were the next stages? And, and ultimately to this place where... <laughs> You actually were up to this point, your safety, your fortress of faith was your doctrine and the clarity of the bricks in your wall and to where you are now, where you are ridiculously comfortable with mystery. And in fact, you're uncomfortable with bricks. Uh, uh, so kind of how you know, move us to that space of uh, of that evolutionary uh, leap. Yeah. Um, so there's a few things that happened. And also too, just, I want to shout out two people that were really big for me in my like more deconstruction type esque days. And actually people that still have a, an influence on me um, today that have, you know, I started out as uh, maybe they were uh, idols of mine, so to speak. And are now I have the the joy and pleasure of calling them friends, which is amazing. But um, uh, Dan Koch and Trip Fuller, both uh, of you guys, um, if you're listening, have been huge and continue to be huge. Um, Dan literally, you know, gives me permission. It's the name of his fucking podcast. <laughs> and Trip, just for whatever reason, Trip uh, kind of uh, took a liking to me. It just kind of like brought me under his wing and um, has offered me the space to ask the questions that I need to ask and be okay with, you know, I don't know. So those two people have been huge. Uh, Mark and Jeanette both also were amazing. And my, all of my, all the staff at Seneca Creek um, was fantastic. So thank you to those people. But uh, really for me, Jesus Collective and the experiences I had out of that, well, one at Jesus Collective, then also with Sid, um, where Jesus Collective was the first place I felt welcome, even with all my questions. And like, I was brutally honest with them because my job wasn't on the line. Um, so I could, could you, you just know, real I, quick, you just, can you real quick just say what the Jesus collective is? Yeah, they, so they're a movement that, um, so it's really complicated actually now, cause they kind of were birthed out of the meeting house, which is the church that Bruxy Cavey was a pastor at, uh, who is a friend of mine that fell from grace and is like most likely going to end up in jail now for doing horrible, horrendous things, abusing his power, um, to sleep with women congregants and stuff like that not cool and so jesus collect was kind of born out of that they currently have, have done a lot of work to separate themselves from that actually like the former like president of jesus collective uh after like you know a whole bunch of staff has quit at the meeting house of course has left jesus collective and is now like the acting head person of the meeting house trying to um contain this dumpster fire it contains not the right word he's actually the meeting house is allowing 
things to burn that need to burn. And they're cooperating with investigation. They like apologize for not calling um, Bruxy's abuse abuse uh, at first and are, are openly doing that. They birthed like, you know, some really cool things. So anyway, that's kind of where they came out of. They're like an Anabaptist kind of tinged um, small grassroots movement that is deeply ecumenical, you know, centered on the person of Jesus, where pastors from all different, um, you know, countries, literally globally, have come together uh, focusing on Jesus and trying to, to find a third way of being in the world that's not, you know, nationalistic or Republican or Democrat or progressive or conservative. It's not, it doesn't play into those things. Um, they welcome a lot of like the more contemplative mystical side of things. Uh, to my Jesus Collective friends, I wish you guys would go a little bit further with that. Wink, wink. Um, <laughs> keep leaning into that. Um, but they're, they're amazing. Um, so I like them. And they were a very helpful place of healing and a, a lily pad that I found rest on in my journey for a long time. Um, and anyway, that's how I met Sid and with spiritual direction and all. She's the one that it got me, you know, um, really to, to move out of just head and sink into heart and body. And she's the one that started asking me questions like, well, where do you feel that in your body? You know, like, well, what is your heart? Like that kind of stuff. So she was amazing. Um, and then really the kicker for me, cause I was still like, and I was, you know, I would talk to my friend, Heather at Seneca Creek all the time. I was like, Heather, I think I need to stop being at Seneca Creek. And I've told her that for like months. <laughs> I'm not a pastor. I can't be a pastor. These other youth pastors are treating me like shit, you know? Um, and so she was a, a safe space for me. And, um, then, you know, I was talking to Sid about that constantly and Sid was helping me trying to discern that. But I was convinced that if I left the church, if I stopped being a pastor, then one, I was giving a big middle finger to God, right? Because this was my calling. I was a special person. This is my calling, right? Um, so I was going to be giving a middle finger to God. I was going to be letting the church down. Um, I thought that God wouldn't love me anymore because <laughs> I was turning my back on God or something like that. Um, I was worried that my parents would no longer be proud of me, right? Because my mom was so and dad was so always so happy to say my son's a pastor. Um, my wife was never happy saying that <laughs> she fucking hated it. But um, uh, she's much happier now that I'm a brewer. But um, yeah, but I had this, this I did an interview with Rob Bell, who was somebody that I really um, looked up to and respected but I was still operating a lot out of head at this point, right? Even with all the stuff with Sid, where she introduced me to these different ways of being. Um, and Rob has always been not just head. And so you can read his books in a heady way, but I actually think once you move on in your journey, his books, going back and rereading them, there's so much more there that I missed. Um, but anyway, I had him on the podcast and I tried to outline his new book, Everything is Spiritual or his newest book. And uh, he laughed at me and was like, dude, like you fucking missed it, man. Like he didn't use the F word, but so you missed it and told me to throw my notes away and encouraged me was like, move out of that beautiful Josh intellect of yours and sink down into your heart. And let's feel our way through this interview um, and go from there. Now, what do you want to talk about? And then like, that's how he did it. And at the end of the episode, um, I made a joke, you know, in the, in the closing moments where I was like, Rob, um, I have a favor I need to ask of you. And he kind of was like, uh, you know, I could see in his body language, like, oh man, this guy's going to ask me to like, I don't know, give a, you know, um, 
an endorsement for a book or like something, you know, something like that. And I was like, if I ever uh, write or publish a book, the day it comes out, I need you to tweet farewell, Josh Patterson. Um, and he like he liked that uh, joke. He, you know, threw his head back and had a deep belly laugh because um, that's exactly what happened to him when he put out Love Wins, right? Uh, John Piper tweeted out farewell, Rob Bell. And uh, that just grew Rob's popularity. <laughs> so thanks, John Piper. It must have been fucking predestined for that to happen. Um, and now Rob Bell is more popular than you are, John. So well done. Um, but anyway, Rob said, I'll do you one better. I'll say it right now. And he said, farewell, Josh Patterson. And that was literally like a deeply spiritual moment for me in my life it, and a turning point. It was like the veils fell off of my eyes. Like I could see my ego for what it was, this projection of Josh that was called pastor. And it was like, farewell to that thing. Farewell, Josh Patterson, not farewell, the core of who Josh Patterson is farewell, the projection of who Josh Patterson is. Um, and then that was like, I was like, all right, I have to do this. Um, so that was really the first time maybe I trusted my body, my heart and my mind in an alignment that I didn't recognize that's what I was doing. But that was definitely one of the first times. So that was huge for me. Uh, well, I, that's so that's so massive. I, you know, I, I think that part of the, the the process of growth is we think we are who we are, right? This is, but really, we we learn at a very young age, pretty much by the age of five. I think that we have to present a certain. We have all this internal dissonance going on, and we have to present a certain image, and we can pick the image. You know, we we do this subconsciously, but it might be the the fun loving happy person, or it might be the ivory tower intellect, or it might be the loving person who always is the volunteer to drive to the airport, or it might be the peaceful guy that never gets uh, their feathers ruffled or the badass who's a bull in a China shop that doesn't give a shit. Like we have all these personalities, right? That we, we cling on to, to present in order to get us through life. And then we often then glom those personalities onto systems that we think are going to uh, facilitate that. And so especially that's true in the church and spirituality. And it takes to me, I think the, what Rohr talks about in his book, you know, falling upwards, the spirituality of two halves of life. You know, the first half is building this egoic container of uh, success and identity. And it's not bad. Ego, ego victories are not bad things. It's a necessary, like when I had, and I've got three grown kids now, but when they were growing up, I would love for them to have ego victories and this idea of kind of confidence. But then we reached this point where all those external accolades and trying to find life by our uh, acceptance or resumes or 401ks or body types or academic achievements or blah, 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 blah. We, we reach a point where they no longer give us any steam or joy. And, and, and we actually then at that point, you know, a midlife crisis where we go out and buy a Porsche uh, and do all the classic, you know, get hair plugs, you know, or we uh, begin to look internally uh, in that process. And in that process, we have to, you know, I, I think that when we talk about uh, the Paschal mystery, you know, this idea of the death and resurrection, you know, to, to nest it in, or even the seasons of the year where every, you know, it, it, over and over embodies this process of what is dying and what is being born again. And I'm going to, and we can reclaim the beauty of born againness uh, that, that, it, that in this, in that moment with Rob, that this was a acknowledging of a death it was it was a funeral pyre in that moment for this uh, image that you'd been presenting and not even realizing the depth of that image 
and then allowing uh, the, the, your true self in Merton's language, uh, Thomas Merton's language, your true self uh, to emerge. And, and that's what I feel like, you know, when we talk about the, the, the spiritual process, it's for a long time, I thought not only was it a, a, a fortress of faith that was an external uh, theological construct, but I also thought on a sanctif sanctification level, it was, I'm a piece of shit that's broken down into rubble, like a set of old ruins. And my spiritual journey is applying bricks for me to become something new because I'm inherently a piece of shit. Cause I was actually a five point Calvinist for a while. Uh, and that is hard to shake. Um, and so, but now I believe that that we are all created in the imago to the image of God, that there's absolutely gorgeous beauty within, the true self is within, and that it is just covered up with layers and layers of sediment and constrictive beliefs and fear-based bullshit, ironically, many of them coming from the church and the spiritual traditions that we follow, and that the spiritual journey is about allowing kind of the, the, the divine, the universe, the presence of God to gently, like a, like an archeologist gently brush away those layers of sediment and constricting beliefs to allow our true selves to emerge. And that to me is what happened to you that had been obviously been happening for a long time, but then kind of had a, a, a aha moment in that interview with Rob, where your true self was set free and exposed maybe uh underneath the rubble underneath the layers of uh sediment and debris and you were set free to say and, and i know from our conversations and in my own life this is an ongoing process it was not a one-time chrysalis emergence but we are continually continuing to emerge from chrysalis but in that process so so between your you know the methodist church seneca creek your spiritual director uh in in this evolution you finally reached this point of saying you know, farewell, Josh Patterson, which was literally naming and defining uh, the uh, Josh's image of presenting to the world and allowing that to die. Which, as you said, you conflated your identity with your profession. You conflated your identity, and and and, and earlier you talked about. I think what did your your therapist or spiritual director said? You had this ontological crisis, ontological uh, uncertainty, yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. And, crisis, yeah. Yeah, you can blend those two. I'll, you just put that into a, a smoothie blender. Uh, and, but, you know, when ontological, that's the, on the level of being, right? On in the very, you know, on the very level of being, you're in this questioning and, and existential crisis. Uh, and of who the fuck am I? Do I have any value? Why am I here? What is my worth? And so it sounds like in that moment, you became cognitively, cognitively aware of this piece is being teased apart. And you begin to say, I actually am, Josh inherently is valuable. Um, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but uh, in that process of farewell, Josh Patterson, that had this culmination in this interview with Rob, wh where, where did that begin to impact your understanding of yourself? And then what were the ripple effects in terms of, and I already have some idea, but uh, this is a leading question, but uh, what were the ripple effects in terms of your marriage, in terms of your profession, in terms of how things unfolded from there? Yeah, so um, ultimately I ended up, like you said, leaving the church and that was still, I still had a lot of fear around that. Um, I was very excited to become you know, to go be a bartender <laughs> at a brewery because I'd always liked beer, right? Like even in the church, um, it was no secret that Josh liked craft beer. 
I was the first person to bring alcohol on stage to preach a message at Seneca Creek. And I'm you know, very proud of that. <laughs> there's your legacy. I'm not, I'm not saying, look, I mean, if you have no other legacy, I mean, Josh, you could just know, we'll put that on your tombstone. Yes. <laughs> you were the first yes. to preach with a pint. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, and I led like a, like a theology on tap kind of thing with the young adults who were of age, okay, for clarity purposes, of age, we would go to an established uh, brewery where they were ID'd and carded and you know, then they could be served. I think it's outside. a safe space. I think it's a safe space for you. You don't have to do that level of uh, distancing. But yes, I hear you. <laughs> I understand. Yeah, I hope you feel the safe space here. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. But just for clarifying purposes, because I, I was a high school pastor too, right? It's not like I was giving 17-year-olds craft beer. Um, I've never done that. Anyway, um, so like that was really cool. I got to do that in the church as well. So I had the craft beer thing going for me already. And so... Um, when I left the church, like one of the things I was afraid of, and Greg, you had mentioned this before is being told like, oh, dude, if you're, cause I still had like my pastor friends being like, oh, are you still going to go to church? This kind of stuff. Like, no, actually I can't right now. Like the, the best thing for me actually, uh, is to not do that. Like if I actually want to still try to follow this Jesus guy, then going to church is exactly where I don't need to be. <laughs> it will have the opposite effect. Uh, the fruits of it to use, you know, Jesus language, uh, would suck. And so I needed to leave. So I stopped going to church, um, started working in this brewery, and I realized, like, wait a minute, I'm o- I'm okay. Um, I'm not some crazy person running around fucking anything that walks and shooting heroin and, you know, whatever thing that the church told me I was going to become if I didn't go to church on Sunday. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not this crazy person out, like, killing people and robbing everyone or whatever. Um, and like, there's community outside of the church, right? So, so, oh, come to church. It's a community, blah, blah, whatever. Cool. That's great. There is community there. I don't want to, you know, downgrade that or talk shit about it, but also there's communities that exist outside of that. And I built, I started to build a community of people who didn't identify as Christian, um, who didn't give a shit. (laughs) I used to be a pastor, you know, they'd like mess with me about it or whatever, uh, but I was loved and accepted and whatever. I became a part of this community that was beautiful where people in the brewing, in a brewery, like as a bartender, people would sit down and just open up to you in ways that they never did when I was a pastor. Um, because I had that title pastor, right? I think that carries baggage. People still feel like even though they go to pastors for advice, they feel like they can't fully be themselves. I would have guys come in and be like, oh, man. I really fucked up. I got drunk and slept with my, you know, best friend's girl. What do I do? Like, I'm your bartender. (laughs) Like, holy shit. Like, give me, like, let me go in the back and have a beer too. uh, Before we have this question. Uh, Just kidding. Um, I didn't do that when I worked at uh, the first spot. It was against the rules. But um, (laughs) now full tilt. All right. Cannot confirm nor deny. I'm going to shut up right there. But (laughs) um. So like that was a really big revelation for me. I'm fine. I'm outside of this world and I'm okay. Oh, and also guess what? God hasn't gone anywhere either. Uh, God hasn't turned God's back on me. I'm, I'm, if anything, I'm entering this process now where I'm getting heavily into contemplative practice and things like this, uh, which led me to, uh, I started, you know, reading people who I was still too afraid to read in the church. I started reading Alan Watts, which I know is like a gateway drug for some people, but I fucking love Alan Watts. I'm not afraid to say it. 
Um, I've read the majority of his work and I love it. Um, and then I, you know, I read people like uh, Anthony de Mello, who is a Jesuit priest that brought a lot of Eastern uh, philosophy and thought uh, into Christianity. And that led me into uh, Buddhism and specifically the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh. I have read again, <laughs> so much of his work. Um, and he had such an impact on my life um, to the point where like, I still credit the fact that I have faith and believe in God to my interactions with Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh really is the one who taught me the importance of the present moment. And, uh, you know, building off Anthony DeMello's idea of awareness and being aware and, you know, the think, the knower behind the knowing, that kind of stuff. And Thich Nhat Hanh is really where I started to actually be able to learn how to integrate like heart and body and mind um, and this beautiful practice of Buddhism that didn't destroy my Christian faith like I was told by so many people and people still think, you know, that it's going to, uh, but actually enhanced it it made it better. Um, and that opened me up to other religious traditions and practices. And I read people like Rupert Spira, um, who has been deeply helpful and influential. And then I ran into people like you <laughs> through our friend, Dan Koch, right. And, uh, second breath. Um, and you introduced me to people like Philip Shepard, uh, and Phil, I mean, Philip Shepard's book, the, what is it? The radical wholeness of being, that was a game changer for me. That was when really the body stuff, right? Um, and it was actually because of that, uh, I think I've shared this story before. And so I won't go into much detail about it, but like where I had that, uh, I was doing centering prayer and uh, imaginative prayer, right? And had that experience with Jesus where I knew it was time for me to leave uh, 1623 because I just, I wasn't happy. I was listening to my body. Um, and then I did and I left. Right. And everything was OK. Um, all of that happened after stepping out of the church, after being away from that community is really where I would say, like, I became more spiritual, so to speak. And I know it's, you know, people say, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious, um, which is fine. Um, I might even use that to describe myself. Um but at least <laughs> I know that was like a bad word. And when I worked in the church or a bad phrase, it was derogatory. Um, but it started to show me that like, what is actually more scary is people who are religious, but not spiritual. Um, that's way more scary <laughs> than people <laughs> who are spiritual, but not religious. Um, and so that, you know, the Buddhism, the, you know, Alan Watts, Spira, um, that opened me up to things like uh, quantum physics and i started reading books about quantum physics and quantum theology and all this kind of stuff and i saw how the you know mystics and the contemplatives go very nice with buddhism and how that goes very nice with the quantum physics and that goes really nice with my experience and what the world is like and um really opened me up to have this more experiential knowledge of the divine uh to the point where like well, I'm, I'm jumping ahead because something that happened, and I talked to you a lot about this during uh, this time, but I went through a very significant dark night of the soul, which is why I actually stopped doing the podcast. And I started going back to therapy, which is where I got the ontological uh, insecurity and existential crisis bit from. Um, because I was in this place where I was like, I don't know that I believe in 
God anymore. I have these spiritual experiences, mystical experiences I can't explain, but like, I don't know. Um, I don't know, like, who is this Jesus guy? Like, I, is this all bullshit? Can I even call myself a Christian? And it was, it was, I mean, it was painful. It was scary. Like my depression came back. Um, it, I mean, basically it was a dark night of the soul, but like in the truest sense, like I didn't feel God anymore. I didn't all of these things. And so it was actually then when I turned to the practice of silence, I stopped reading. <laughs> I stopped consuming so much shit, stopped bringing things into my mind um, that then and leaned into that darkness um, and sought out the darkness and ran into it instead of away from it, uh, which then coming out on the other side of that um, is now where I have like this deep sense of peace. Um, I have this experiential knowledge of the divine where like to me questions I used to care about I don't really care about anymore because I know it sounds trite but I know everything's going to be okay. <laughs> so like I'm not so concerned about which atonement theory is right um or like which I, I know I'm you know writing for a book about this right now but like I honestly don't give a shit about the hell question. <laughs> Because I know I like I know I know I know the divine and not intellectually, but on a bit like through my heart and through my body experientially, I have, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh says the way out is in and I've that inward journey, um, finding that the, the deepest, most truest aspect of who I am is divine love. <laughs> Everything is OK, even when it's not. And I know that experientially. And so my experience is really hard to argue with experience. You can now, but because of this experience, I have this grounded faith um, that like sometimes I call Christian, but also I'm like open to maybe it's not that, um, but I have this grounded faith in experiential knowledge of the divine where I know that everything is okay, even where it's not. I know that I am loved. I know that I belong. I know that um, I am saturated in the presence of the divine. We're swimming in God's love. Uh, the kingdom of God is here and present. And all I have to do is return to the present moment to see that that's where I'm at, um, which then these ideas, you know, hell, atonement, whatever, I can interact with them freely because I'm grounded in something that isn't my fortress of faith. It's not the bricks. Like it's something completely different. Um, the ideas don't matter as much because I have this experiential knowledge. Uh so they still matter to me. I still have opinions. Like I'll tell you which atonement theologies I think suck and which ones I like um, <laughs> and stuff like that. And, I, and I've, I'm learning that. Um, and you've helped me with this a lot. And you've talked about this idea of um, we can either be broken down or broken open. And for a long time, I lived as a person that was just broken down and would just project my shit elsewhere and be angry and throw stones. Um, and that was great until it wasn't. Um, I got and I've gotten shit for saying this before. People think it's uh, too um, dismissive, but it got boring. Um, and I wanted to be known for what I believe in, not what I, you know, am against, what I'm for, rather, not what I'm against. And Richard Rohr always says, the, you know, the best practice or the best critique of the bad is practice of the better. So I just wanted to do like do that um, and learn that these, that the, that there are people um, who are in places that I used to be, that past versions of Josh, uh, 
you know, existed in and that I can use that past experience to help those people who are sitting in that space that I used to sit in that like the scars that I have now, um, and Alma said this when we interviewed her, um, are actually ways that I can lead other people. I can use my scars to help others. Um, and the scars can either like make you jaded or they can make you very empathetic, um, and open and compassionate. And I was tired of them making me shitty and miserable. (laughs) And I gave it to this. Yeah. I I just, there's so many thoughts I had when you were sharing, uh, and just being really moved by your process and that shift, uh, from, I really think in, in many levels, it was control and uh, belonging, kind of these instinctual drives that we're willing to uh, eject our internal sense of self and what our heart's telling us for the sake of uh, belonging and the sense of order. But it reminds me, and this, this story might be apocryphal, um, but you know we have... We have Thomas Aquinas to thank and to unthank, to uh, flip him the bird for the sake of taking uh, Aristotelian logic and applying it to theology. You know, pretty much all the systematic theology you could trace to uh, Aquinas's work uh, and applying um, Aristotelian logic uh, to the Bible, which I think has done, it's really interesting, but done a lot of harm. But then, of course, he was writing his Summa Theologica, and then had apparently the spiritual experience of the divine that, that after this moment of experience, he dropped his pen and never wrote another word. Uh, and he said that all that he'd written was just dust uh, and debris in the face of the beauty that he just experienced. And he didn't apparently pick up a pen again because who, who was he to attempt to? And that's where we just start leaving it to the poets instead of the theologians. Um, because uh, we, we can't do justice uh, purely with our rational Aristotelian minds. And uh, t- to me, in a similar way, uh, you, know, you know, Thomas Aquinas, Josh Patterson, same sentence classically, um, but you know, where, where you reach this place where your whole life you built this fortress of faith uh, to attempt to create order, security, a sense of peace, it didn't work. Uh, it the, all, all of these bricks not only didn't work, but actually facilitated a system of uh, oftentimes abuse or anxiety and depression. And so, in, and, and of course, the system is telling you, these systems of belonging, these communities are telling you, if you let our bricks go, then you're a piece of shit. They won't say that, but then you are in danger. And, and, tell, and I've said this many times, and this has been my own experience, but until our need for internal integrity until our need for the outside to match the inside transcends our need for belonging. We can't become who we truly are. We can't allow our true selves to emerge. But once you reach that point where you had to come emerge, you had to let your true self emerge, then all of a sudden you realize, oh my God, all these bricks that I've been forming for my lifetime are actually not only unhelpful, but they're harmful. And uh, instead of uh, finding security in order, in controllable bricks that I'm crafting, I'm actually now finding comfort in something transcendent, which reminds me 
of what Paul said of that this this the peace of Christ that transcends all understanding. You know this this concept that there is this uh, inherent ontological rest and abiding that transcends the rationale. Um, and then, of course, I, I'm, my my brain is mushy right now, just in terms of who who it was that said it, who the the the, the genius woman who said uh, all is well and all is well and you know all shall be well. Um, but th that's what you're describing. And it, Teresa and it, of Avila, maybe. Thank you, Teresa of Avila. That's it. That's my my brain was was missing it. But that's Teresa of Avila. You know, all shall be well, and all shall be, and all manner of things shall be well. And you can't think yourself to that. You can't think yourself to that. You have to experience yourself from that on a body level, to the heart level. Then yep. finally, slowly, it's metabolized at the head level. Um, so, 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 and, and I think that then process theology is kind of the, uh, attempting to, uh, what, what that is, is it's Teresa of Avila reaching a theological, uh, uh, framework level <laughs> in terms of process theology, but how would you, which embraces mystery inherently, uh, so, so where you are now, um, with that just kind of give us a, and I know we're, we're, we're going into almost two hours now, um, but we're just getting, you know, but, but, but as just to wade into that, this, this aspect of what does it look like for where you are now? And you are a brewer. Uh, you're no longer in the church. Uh, you are at a place where theologically and on a body level, you have experienced the divine. Uh, you are more comfortable with mystery than ever. Uh, maybe, of, of course, we both know nothing's ever wrapped up in a red bow, you know, uh, and, and, a, and a perfect little harmonic, uh, package, but where would you say like in this moment you are in terms of, uh, the sense of authentic rest and peace, and then also the existing struggle? Yeah, that's a great question. I, and I would say that, um, for one, I'm in a place where I'm finally being able to uh forgive myself for past versions of myself um i've i've been able to talk about it before like oh yeah we got to transcend and include our past selves blah, blah blah but i'm actually getting to a place now where that's just not an idea that it's actually um becoming metabolized it's 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 i'm experiencing that um genuinely transcending and including past versions of josh um and accepting that version of Josh and being thankful for that version of Josh and loving that version of Josh uh, because that Josh was just doing the best that he could with what he knew at the time. And um, I'm thankful for that. And so there's a piece that comes from that uh, for accepting those places I've been and recognizing that this is all just a part of, of the journey, right? of the dance. Um, actually, I like dance language more than journey. I know we say journey of becoming on here a lot, which is fine. It's still nice, but I think dance is maybe a little bit more accurate. Um, but the dance of becoming doesn't quite flow as nice, you know? Um, so there's that bit. Um, I have gotten to a point because I remember like still, and it's difficult, like with deconstruction, even after I stopped believing in hell, right? And I went from hell, you know, eternal conscious torment. Then I went to annihilation um, because it was like a nice bridge. Right. And I was like, this is cool. And I thought I was edgy. And then uh, which is fine. Annihilation is, you know, I think you can make a very strong biblical case for that. 
um, whatever. But, uh, you know, then ultimately to some form of ultimate reconciliation, although like, I don't know, because like open relational theology, God's not coercive. So like if God, if everyone is saved, does God force that? I don't know. Something, whatever. But I'm not like worried about that <laughs> question as much anymore. Right. So, but that, what I realized what was happening was so much of theology and so much of the, at least the kind of Christianity that I grew up in is so fucking concerned with the next life, the life that is to come, that it skips over this beautiful gift that we've already been given, which is the life that we have right here in front of us now, currently, that we are living. And so I've become much more concerned with living this life. Because honestly, I don't know what's going to happen when I die. Um, You know, on, on good days, I'm like, yeah, I hope that heaven is a thing. Uh, But then like on more, I guess, nihilistic days, I'm like, no, like if if there's nothing like I'm, I'm dead, I'm dead, which then for me gives me even more reason to treat this life that that this life matters more when I think that way. Um, Because this is the only shot I got. I don't have some, you know, next life to, you know, do whatever. So I I might as well live a good life now. Um, And that drives me to, uh, because of my spiritual connection right because you can become like a narcissist with that perspective and just be like well it's all about me and what i wanted da, 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 da. but i think with the the um interactions i've had with the divine and and having the eyes to see how everything is interconnected and like we've talked about before like sin arises out of this illusion of separateness separateness from each other from god from creation but rather seeing that and this is a big idea in process that seeing everything is actually one organic whole uh one um one process one entity is not quite the right word but you see what i'm saying um if you have that perspective then you're like well then uh what i do to myself i do to my neighbor what i do you know to myself i do into god whatever and then that brings transformation and then you don't want to live like a selfish shithead because you want this this world to be as good as it can for everybody because you recognize if you're taking advantage of other people that's just as bad for you as it is for them um, and so I'm more worried about this life now. How do I live in this life as if heaven is here? How do I make that a reality? Um, how do I live in this life? What does it look like to live in such a way that I genuinely believe that I am deeply interconnected with nature and with my neighbor and with God? What does that do? So I'm, I'm more excited about that. <laughs> Uh, my faith has become more pragmatic in that fact, or in, in that sense, you know, um, orthopraxy has become more important to me than orthodoxy, which by the way, like orthodox is so funny to me because people are like, oh, I just want to follow the classic historic, you know, orthodox faith, traditional faith of Christianity. I'd be like, well, which one? Because like, there's never been just one Christianity. It's always been Christianities, plural, ever, even since like the first Jesus followers. <laughs> and they, they argued about this shit and wrote a book. It's called the Bible. Um, so like, which one? Which orthodoxy are you talking about? You mean the one that, that the fish tank that you grew up in? You, you just want to do and say whatever they said? That's fine. Cool. Um, but yeah, so like I'm not as interested in that anymore. Um, I've come to embrace like, so there's this thing called apophatic and cataphatic theologies, uh, positive and negative. Um, one is like, we can say things about God that are meaningful. And the other one's like, no, we can't. We can only speak about God in ways that God is not this. God is not that. 
um, which is like where you get your more like mystics, you know, contemplative stuff. I've actually found like trying to balance the two is really helpful um, because saying positive things about God is just a really helpful way of speaking. It's pragmatic, right? Uh, but also being able to balance and know and have the humility to know that all I'm doing is just being a finger pointing at the moon. Um, and that my finger pointing is not actually the moon itself, uh, which opens you up to be able to embrace mystery. Um, because you realize that the words that you're saying, it's not the thing itself. Um, it's really hard to describe the thing, right? Uh, someone once said, I don't remember wh who it was, but they said that like the burden of like being a mystic is walking around knowing like <laughs> you have this like great, I don't know, secret or truth about reality that no one else gives a shit about. <laughs> and then it's really hard to put it into words because people have to experience it for themselves. And so um, I want people to experience it for themselves. And then like slowly, and we had a conversation about this the other night, Greg, um, after we interviewed Alma, but like, I still have like Brian McLaren calls it like your inner fundamentalist or, you know, or uh, psychologist, like your inner critic. I still have this inner critic that pops up sometimes. Um, that's like, dude, Josh really like used to be a pastor and now you're a brewer. Like you go to work, you make beer, you drink beer, you give people vices you know, that they can abuse and, you know, whatever, um, like you're a piece of shit. And I'm actually coming to a place where I'm learning and seeing um, and accepting that that's not true. Um, that again, Brewer is just a game that I'm playing currently. It's a hat that I can put on and wear. I like it. I love it, actually. It's like maybe my favorite hat. <laughs> um, I still love, you know, I, the, I love putting on the theology hat. Um, or, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but I love being a brewer and it's been hard for me to accept that, that I, I feel like I found the thing that I want to do. Um, but that's been hard to accept. And there is still like a lack of fulfillment that comes in that sometimes, uh, but like doing this podcast aids in that, right. It, it gets that part of me out that, you know, feels suppressed or like being a part of theology beer camp or teaching a class of trip or doing that, you know, high school retreat I did um, back in November, or like I'm going to be speaking at like the progressive youth ministry conference uh, in February. That's going to be fun. You know, it's like that side of me still can be expressed, but also I'm learning. Uh, and this is kind of um, something that you named well for me the other night that like uh, when I live from this place of deep authenticity, um, not like Disney princess authenticity as I'm talking about, but like genuine, deep authenticity that comes from doing the inner work that comes from being willing to sit with mystery, to sit with darkness, to hold seemingly contradictory ideas together in tension um, is actually like when I live out of that space, it's just a way of being in the world. And that has impact on other people's lives because it creates a space where um without even having to throw rocks the bullshit of culture and society is caught into question right because i'm living outside of that uh and i can create safe spaces for people regardless of their religious faith or background or you know none at all um and i'm trying to just be the most truest deepest form of who uh I've experienced myself to be, which is divine love. And if I can live out of that space, then inherently that's going to have an impact on those around me. 
um, and that can bring transformation and maybe hopefully give people the eyes to see that everything is connected and that they are loved, uh, that they do belong. Um, and yeah, it's a much more free space, right? Like what is the, the Bible passage? Like it is for freedom <laughs> that Jesus has set us free or something like that. Um, and it's like actually finding that true freedom. Uh, and it is that peace that passes all understanding. Um, cause I don't have to have it all figured out. Um, I can interact with all these ideas and theologies and different religions and perspectives and like, just know that everything's okay. And so coming to a place where I am accepting that about myself and, uh, trying to live out of that space as much as possible. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at now. Dude. Okay. Thank you for all of that. Uh, Oh my God, there's so much there. Yeah, there's about 20 to 25 books uh, if we wanted to go back right up to the headspace and the mind space. But um, but thank you for articulating all that out of your vulnerability and journey. Uh, so much there. Dude, a freaking feast. Uh, it reminds me, I know, I mean, I think I could re-listen to that a number of times and still just be hearing new things. Um and and you did a radical job of distillation distillation distilling uh your journey into those shares um but just as you know as we wrap up this this awesome podcast of you articulating your journey it, it reminds me of i don't know if you heard the story richard Rohr went to this particular monastery uh and on the monastery was this uh monk who was a hermit like he just lived out in the woods and was given permission to just do his own thing and just you know be contemplative and 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 be by himself and uh richard was walking down a path uh you know in this monastery on the monastery grounds and saw this hermit uh, uh this monk you know walking towards him so richard kind of stepped off the path and kept himself quiet because this guy had been very silent and just allowed him to pass but the guy stopped at richard and he looks at, looks him in the eyes. He says, he "says Richard, your uh, people know you. People listen to you. Uh, will, will you tell the world that God is not out there, but in here?" And he just pointed to his heart. And then he just kept walking. Like this mystic, this freaking mystic, this hermit who lived by himself forever. When he had the opportunity to distill his whole experience of what he would share with the world, it was a simple message that God is not out there separate that God is in here intrinsically connected within uh, the, on the level of being that was his one message um so that hermit had many decades to think about his answer to that question and maybe think he might bump into Richard Rohr on a path one day to express it to the world but i'm going to ask you the same question josh if you could if you could distill uh kind of the the essence of your journey into and it's not limiting it's not saying it's the only thing you'd ever say but maybe a facet of the diamond uh of of with where you are what you would say is the heartbeat behind what you've learned in your journey what would be what would be the words to the world yeah that's hmm. i would want people to know that one they're loved deeply and unconditionally um, 
to that they belong exactly as they are you know that true version of yourself that like you're afraid that if other people saw it uh they wouldn't like you <laughs> um yes that uh you are loved uh you belong and that everything is going to be okay even when it's not um yeah i think those three things is what that. i would, <laughs> what i would say fucking a man fucking a right there that is it. that is it that is beautiful that's poignant and i do think i mean those that's 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 the work of a lifetime right of the journey is is of actually metabolizing the beauty of those uh three truths and, and i know that all of those things are not articulated out of some uh hallmark card or some fortune cookie or even just some theological text but all of those have been born out of uh your gut of working through a lot of brutal uh situations and hardship and pain and that all of that has evolved from your story so brother you know i just i i love you and uh i'm grateful for you and just thank you for your vulnerability today for your authenticity for being so transparent and real and also uh just for bringing the culmination kind of the diamond with its multifaceted beauty of uh all that you've learned along the path along the dance along the dance floor yeah, for sure, man. I'm. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, it was fun. Um, and I think too, it's like those three things might sound super simple and trite and and cliffy, um, but it's like this kind of simplicity that comes out of the other side of complexity. Um, that I think, again, you just have to kind of experience. Uh, so yeah, so there's that, and then also too, I'll just since you shared a cool story, I want to share a, a, like a story that I heard from Thich Nhat Hanh um, that really spoke to me. And then I've been kind of uh, chasing it ever since, so to speak, if that makes sense. And uh, mm -hmm. it's been a, it's been a helpful guide in, in all that I do. Um, and so here's the story. Basically uh, there was this dude and he had a dream that a a uh, traveler was going to travel into his village and this traveler possessed the most expensive and, you know, uh, whatever it is, the most expensive, you know, uh, piece, uh, this giant diamond that would bring him the most wealth in the world. Right. Um, and that in the dream, uh, he went to the traveler and the traveler gave him was going to give him this diamond. And then he was going to become the richest person in the world. So he wakes up from this dream and he's like, holy shit, I'm going to have, you know, this, this has to be real. So he runs into town and sure enough, the traveler from his dream, here he is walking through his village and he approaches the traveler and he goes to him and he says, oh my goodness, you're not going to believe this. But I had a dream last night that you were going to be here and that I was going to meet you and that in your backpack, you possess the most expensive diamond in the world and that you were going to give it to me. And I was going to become the richest man, you know, in the world. And the traveler said, oh, yeah, right. Takes off his backpack, pulls out this massive diamond, right? The biggest diamond the traveler or the, the guy had ever seen and hands it over zips up his backpack and just keeps walking and the trap you know the guy is so excited he has this diamond and 
uh, he takes it and he, he runs home and he like, you know, dust off his bookshelf and, and sets it on there. Um, and he starts like just looking at it and thinking, and then uh, something happens inside of him and he starts freaking out and he grabs the diamond and he runs out the door and is frantically searching for this traveler. And finally he finds the traveler sleeping underneath a tree and he wakes him up and he says, sir, sir, I don't want this. You can have it back. He was like, well, what do you mean? You're now the richest man in the world. He was like, yeah, but I realized something. You handed over this diamond like it was nothing and just kept going. Whatever kind of richness that you possess that allowed you to do that, that's the kind of wealth that I want. Mm. And that's the story. <laughs> and that's the kind of fucking wealth that I want, man. Yeah, I'm, man. That. You just literally drop the pen. You drop the mic on that. Yeah. I do think it is, it is that uh, as we shift away from... Uh, egoic victories from uh, attempting to find our identity externally um, and in no way minimizing the, the beauty of the externals because I think there's tremendous gifts there but recognizing that that real wealth is uh, on the inside the kingdom of God is within and that and again for me again I'm 50 and I've walked some shitty roads I've danced some ugly ass dances um but i think it, also some beautiful ones and some incredible uh spaces but it's it's endless uh you know when i was when i remember when i was 40 i was thinking dude i know myself so well uh i've got i i have a sense of myself and and the the knowledge that i grew in who i am and the inner journey in the last 10 years you know blow the hair off my head in terms of continued expression i know that's just going to continue this whole process of uh really learning to find that inner treasure so right on josh thank you for sharing that uh thank you for this whole conversation i think this is going to be uh it's been awesome for me and i think it'll be a gift to anyone who who listens so thank you brother yeah thanks for uh asking me really good questions <laughs> i appreciate well, it and, and you you know i'm feeling tender you know i'm feeling tender and a little uh uh going into retro world when i start calling you brother uh yeah hey, right <laughs> but yeah but you can tell i'm feeling tender and a little vulnerable when i start doing that hey brother so but anyway man seriously thank you uh and uh listener thank you so much for being a part and as always uh so grateful for all of you and uh again josh and i our real passion is to create authentic spaces where there's no bullshit, where we can be real about what is happening in the evolution of our own journeys uh, really with the hope of what it means to live uh, fully and genuinely uh, with a fully expressed body, heart, and mind. So thank you for being a part. Yeah, thank you guys so much. And uh, as always, go in peace. <laughs>